At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The only leverage we have is to put, put pressure on, on our city officials through the media because at the end of the day, they kind of got us because they know we're going to do it anyway, right? And so we have to, we have to create an awareness a public relations campaign to make sure that people know what's going on, that are the, the normal systems and structures that are built to support people that are perpetually oppressed and dependent upon the system to survive, um, they're falling apart. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to the executive director of Serve Your City, a youth-based nonprofit that has now been repurposed to serve as the organizational infrastructure hub for the Ward 6 Mutual Aid Network here in Washington, D.C. His name is Maurice Cook. So we're going to talk a little bit with Maurice about uh, society, sports, and the coronavirus and what he's been doing uh, in Ward 6. And we're going to explain to folks who don't know what Ward 6 even means for Washington, D.C. Also, I've got some choice words about the plans to bring sports back early. And I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards. But first, Maurice Cook. Maurice, that, thanks so much for joining us on the show. I really do appreciate it. Before uh, we say anything, I just want to break down a little uh, some of the things that were in the introduction we did for you. Um, in normal times, in non-corona times, what is Serve Your City? Uh, Serve Your City is a uh, D.C.-based uh, nonprofit organization that I founded uh, nine years ago. And normally we serve you know, underserved youth. Uh, black and brown children here in the city. And we do um, programs that uh, most of these kids uh, generally can't afford to do. Um, we do non-traditional programs, like we, we have the only majority black youth rowing crew here in the city, and we row out of the Anacostia Community Boathouse. Uh, we do tennis, we do swim, snorkel, scuba diving instruction, um, of course, we do academic support and tutoring, um, but we also do an early career and college prep engagement uh, program. And then we also um, we organize. Um, you know, I, I teach young people how how to become young organizers, working along uh, with organizations like Empower DC and and One DC, uh, because many of the issues that you know advocates and activists work on through the city, you know, all over the city. Um, the youth that we serve are, are generally directly impacted by those issues, by those policies. And so, you know, we believe that, you know, we have the answer. We are the answer to all of our problems. And, and so just trying to, trying to help the, and, and create a seed for the, the younger generation uh, to protect what they have here in the city because um, the city is changing so much and, and many of them are being displaced and removed uh, you know, due to capitalism and gentrification and all of that manifestation. Now, uh, you said that you've been, um, that Serve Your City has been repurposed to be the infrastructure hub for the Ward 6 Mutual Aid Network. What is that? What is the Mutual Aid Network? So about almost three weeks now, um, right around the the mayor's decision edict to uh, make people stay at home, the stay at home order. Um, a group of activists and, and, and experienced organizers were on a call together uh, citywide to create uh, the citywide DC mutual aid network. And we decided to organize within blocks um, represented by each ward. So, you know, Ward 1 has their own block, Ward 2 has their own block. And Ward 7 and 8 are, are working together because, you know, the, the immense um, needs within Ward 7 and Ward 8 
who house the, the most marginalized and oppressed communities here in D.C. So Ward 7 and Ward 8 combined forces and groups like BLM DC and Black Swan Academy, uh, BYP 100 and, and many others um, kind of came together uh, to, to create this citywide mutual aid network. And, and so I was, I was on the call, I was asked to join the call uh, because folks know of my um, you know, embedded uh, structural support of Ward 6 where, where I live and, 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 and where Survey City is hubbed. And so, and so basically, uh, with a group of volunteers, kind of more new folks to the community, new folks to, to DC, um, I organized the Ward 6 uh, Mutual Aid Team. And what we're doing, Serve Your City, what Serve Your City's doing is using um, its already embedded infrastructure to support uh, folks who, who are feeling um, a crunch with the shelves being empty um, with their regular networks breaking down, truthfully, um, as far as food and cleaning supplies and PPE equipment and, and all the safety protocols that everyone else is, 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 is taking advantage of if they have the money to, to be able to afford to do so. And so that's what it looks like throughout the city. And, and what Survey City has done, what we've done with the Ward 6 Mutual Aid Team is not only are we, we creating a structure um, to support folks' immediate needs. We're also tackling the digital divide issue here in the city with all the youth being um, now out of school and their parents being the ones expected um, to implement or facilitate their educational uh, growth and educational outcomes for their own children. Um, so we, and we know that we have a, a traditional systemic uh, digital divide gap. And, and really, the digital divide gap is nothing but a manifestation of capitalism and the have and have nots. And and so what we decided to do was collect laptops and, and tablets and devices and trying to come up with um, innovative uh, Internet access accessibility uh, for for the black and brown poor people here in the city who are being punished because they don't have enough money um, to purchase their own devices or, 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 or acquire the Internet on their own. And, and, and finally, and probably most importantly, we're about to embark upon a public health campaign on the ground, um, partnering with our, our community-led organizations, because we deliver food every day to folks. And we, we need to make sure that um, the black people specifically um, within the city, but we're going to start in Ward 6, but they understand what's to come because what it's looking like on the other end is devastating. Um, the way that we've been working is that um, I've been running around with a, a whistleblower, a doctor from one of our local hospitals and trying to get on as many platforms as possible, media platforms. And he's telling the truth about what it looks like on the other end once people are captured into the, the capitalist medical industrial complex, really. Um, because some, some existential choices will be made for poor black people once they get into that into that complex. And so we're trying to figure out ways to warn people, to let people know the severity of the issue, uh, because there's really no such thing as public health, right? Uh, public health education. And so we have to quickly, you know, create uh, literature, uh, create, um, you know, publications, uh, media publications, as far as posters, hand cards, palm cards, whatever we can get our hands on and make sure that, that folks understand what's to come and that they are in jeopardy. They, the target zone is, is falling right on, on their chest and, and trying to be as uh, preventative as possible of giving people all the information necessary to survive. Um, now, there's been a, uh, some talk in the media, finally, there's been some talk in the media about the divide in terms of who is uh, being affected by the coronavirus and how it is affecting communities unequally, particularly with black and brown communities uh, bearing the brunt. And there's been some eye-opening statistics about this uh, in places like Illinois, for example, and Louisiana. It just sets your hair on end in terms of, and of course, in New York City. What are you seeing in Washington, D.C. about who is getting affected and, and and just the, the people who've died uh, from coronavirus. 
Right. And and it's it's following that trend, the, the national trend that it's impacting um, black people the most um, so far here. Now, D.C., we, we it's been a somewhat of a trickle of 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 um, people being tested and, and people um, dying from uh, COVID-19. But if you think about if you take a step back and think about the, the way that the media has played into this and, and certainly our, our, our public officials, our city elected officials. So one of the first things that came out, it was about a week ago, was a, a raw number of the number of uh, folks who've tested positive um, within Washington, D.C. And, they, and they, they broke it down by ward, not yet by race, for whatever reason. This, in my mind, of course, my opinion is this, this uh, settler, colonial, white supremacist country. Um, that's the reason. Even in Washington, D.C., with, with the majority of black people, the black people are still the majority here um, at, at 46 or 47 percent. Even here in Washington, D.C., they did not provide the racial breakdown of who who was re, who was tested positive and who had uh, passed away due to COVID, but the first number that they put out was a number of people who tested positive per ward, and and that was such a um, it was almost a purposed intentional uh, mis misleading data point because at that time ward six had the most people tested positive, but ward six has the most people in the city. And so they didn't they didn't give us the percentage per ward, right? They gave us the raw number of the total people who tested positive within each ward. And so it made it look like that ward six was in jeopardy, you know, without people really knowing um, that ward six has m many more people than most other wards times 15. Right. Ward six is the most populous ward and, and the, the, the largest geographically as well. And so that was a misleading data point. And, and you wonder if, if this stuff is, is intentional. But but now they're starting to give out the percentages per ward. And it's already clear. Ward seven has the highest percentage thus far. Ward eight, you know, uh, running close behind and the folks that are dying mostly here within the city are from Ward 7 and Ward 8. And and I keep saying, and, and you know, we have to put this, we have to put this on as big of a banner as we can. We're going to be the first hit, the hardest hit, and the last served. And that's just the truth. Mm. And that's the way that this is going to play out. But the numbers are increasing. Um, you know, I go on to the radio with this doctor, this whistleblower, we call him Dr. Anonymous, right? Kind of cool of a name. Mm. Uh, Dr. Anonymous. And he told he told me weeks ago, that DC is not due for its outbreak until May June, and at that time, it's still today officially still officially, um, we're supposed to all be able to come back out in, in late April. I mean that's that's what the schools have been told, and that's what the community and the public has been told, and 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 the mayor now is alluding, you know, quote unquote, alluding to the fact that our outbreak may not be until late May, early June, throughout the month of June, so. There has been, I mean, and if you take a look at what's been going on with the news and the way it's leaked out nationally, there we are watching our government trickle information to us to, for a purposed strategy and purpose reason. I think in order to maintain some semblance of control, which we know that they don't have, um, they are they are absolutely in real time. We are living within that conspiracy of the government controlled media. And that has absolutely happened here locally, um, given the fact that officially we still haven't, we still haven't come to the grasp of when is it when we'll all be able to come back outside and go back to work. Mm. And you think they're not being honest with us as a way to, what do you think, keep people from panicking? Uh, just string people along a little bit as if there's light at the end of the tunnel. What, what do you think are the, are the motivations about keeping people in the dark? I think it's market-based. I think it's profit-driven. Um, I think it's, it's also part of kind of the, the, the fear-based uh, control um, of being able to promote 
a semblance of, of structural authority when none truly exists. Um, but I do believe it's profit-driven. Mm. Well, what, can, can you tell us any, um, if it's possible, any stories of anything that you're seeing on the ground, which to you uh, is symbolic of the larger structural inequities in terms of um, how people are being served and what, what this virus is producing? Absolutely. And so over the last couple of weeks, we set up, so every, every ward um, has a hotline for the mutual aid network. And we became very popular very quickly because you got to think about it. We're just a group of volunteers. We're not getting paid to do this. Um, we're not getting any official support to do this from the city um, or from you know the, the, the private side. Um, but we are being supported really through individual donations. And some of us who have the capacity, depending upon the ward and, and the relationships they have, for instance, Ward 6 has received um, some foundational grants. They're, they're, they're starting to roll in. We, we were able to apply for foundational grants. But what happened was um, in D.C., when, when this, start, this stuff started first breaking out and everyone had to stay at home, the city put out an opportunity for nonprofit organizations and businesses, obviously, to receive, you know, a grant slash loan um, from the city government. And that application was due April 1st. Now, if you think about it, the, the stay-at-home order, I believe, was around March 13th, March 16th. And so while us organizers quickly created the infrastructure to the citywide mutual aid network, all of our capacity went into forming these hotlines, um, social media um, publication and, and promotion, um, making sure that we, we got involved with community groups on the ground, um, you know, just building the infrastructure for the, this, the, the mutual aid network. I can speak for Ward 6 and for Serbia City. You know, we didn't have time to apply for money from the city. And, and that money was conditional because that money was tied into keeping the doors open for the larger organizations, right? Making sure that if you took a loss, you could, you could apply to receive uh, money for your loss based upon, you know, the lack of revenue you were generating um, through providing whatever service or selling of whatever product that you, you provide. And so Servery City, I can speak for, for my organization, we were not in that category because, you know, we only have a few employees and and we didn't you know we had already received the revenue necessary to sustain through you know this time thus far and plus we were just too busy um creating the infrastructure to support people immediately when they saw the shelves um being being ravaged um by the haves right who, who were hoarding all this toilet paper and 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 hand wipes and and cleaning supplies and food um so we had to immediately act well, the way it's played out is that city officials, the mayor's office, several council member offices, um, many agencies, including DHS, um, that's Department of Health, uh, DCHA, which is a, a federal entity, really, uh, DCHA is the DC Housing Authority, and many others, DC Office of Aging, who, who handles the seniors, many other social service city-run agencies started referring their, their constituents and clients to our hotline still. And these folks are still calling our hotline, along with the larger, more established um, city-partnered nonprofit agencies, nonprofit organizations, who are referring their clients to our hotline, actually taxing our capacity to support the people that they get paid to support. Now, they can't support them because they sent all of their employees home and, and to practice the stay-at-home order. And their money that they're receiving or will receive is tied into that as well. And so what we're seeing is we are being absolutely used and abused when the city couldn't respond. They, they were fortunate that they had people who have no choices in doing this work because this is we're guided by our spirit of making sure that no one's going to suffer on their own without us doing whatever it takes 
to ensure that people can su survive. And the city knows this now because they vetted us enough to use our resources. And we now have to fight to build some form of a relationship with the city where we're, we're receiving a couple of things. We need, we need to be designated as essential, as essential workers, so that when we're doing our food distributions, that, that the MPD, the Metropolitan Police uh, Department, Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, um, is not harassing us. Right. So the safety of our people um, and our community led orgs uh, on the ground is is essential because they're the ones who are providing the direct service, putting themselves at risk and their families at risk and, and to making sure that people have the food and cleaning supplies and, and whatever equipment necessary to survive. And then secondly, we need PPE immediately. We need a We need a stream of, of PPE. Uh, personal protective equipment, because these folks are in the community every day doing doing the work, and they need to be protected. And and we also need money. We need money to be able to pay for people's gas when they drive out to you know uh, 30, 40, 50 miles out to try to find supplies, because our local grocery stores uh, don't have the supplies to meet the, to meet the need. Um, we need we need money to be able to pass along. To our, our community-led organizations, so that they have whatever resources necessary um, to address and provide the direct support to the people who are in need. Um, we need an official relationship and 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 understanding of of all the work that people are volunteering to do uh, throughout the city. So we so we have to really get into the political game. Um, because you know we are being used and abused. Now, the mayor just put out a newsletter yesterday saying she's going to set up some grocery stores in the schools. Um, she's going to create a hotline number now. And, and she says this is all, all to come. She sent it out yesterday on Friday. She goes, you know, in a, in a short while, she says, as if the situation isn't urgent now. So you want to talk about the privilege of the system to be able to wait almost a month after um, being declaring a stay-at-home order to be able to set up these 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 support systems, um, and it was just an announcement. It hasn't even happened yet, but we we've got to deal with what's happened in the interim, right? And then we got to we got to strategize for what's to come in 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 the next few months because none of us know when we're going to come back outside together again. Yeah, that's right. And and how do you? Uh, deal with that because I know the instinct is like you talk about all this injustice and I see it too and the instinct is well we need to get together and rally we need to apply public pressure we need to gather people uh, what, what are you doing with that instinct well we have to move it, to, we have to move it. so yeah. how, how are you doing it yeah we we have to I mean we're doing it through you know texting we're doing it through social media we're doing it through zoom um, you know, we're strategizing through, you know, uh, the media platforms that we have Skype. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's tough. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's tough. And, you know, for this particular issue, you know, we don't have any leverage. The only leverage we have is to put, put pressure on, on our city officials through the media, because at the end of the day, they kind of got us because they know we're going to do it anyway. Right. And so, we have to we have to create an awareness uh, public relations campaign to make sure that people know what's going on that are the the normal systems and structures that are built to support people that are perpetually oppressed and dependent upon the system to survive um, they're falling apart and and there are wonderful beautiful amazing people stepping in I, I said the other day I said you know when the system fails, that's when the people show up and power to the people. And, and, and that is the truth. And so we are getting to see uh, the, the, the real deal folks versus the pretenders right now. Mm. Because if you have a choice to stay at home and take care of you, you and yours, God bless you. But not all of us have that choice because, you know, I can't I'll speak for myself. I'm not going to sit here and make sure I'm to the good. Well, I know my people are, are suffering um, right around the corner, right down the street, um, across the neighborhood, um, through the community. I, I, I won't do it. I can't do it. And I'm not alone. Many, many people can't do it. And so we are working very hard 
Um, some of us are, are still working full time doing their telework while while building this at the same time. So it's just been an amazing display of 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 liberation work, not not the charity model. The way we've set it up in Ward Six is, you know, we have the black led uh, community orgs that have been doing the work on the ground for many 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 years, um, doing the the direct uh, distribution of food, while we have our our allies. Um, of all stripes, kind of doing the operational um, administrative work because we, we we will not set up any um, white saviorism. We will, will not set up anything that resembles the charity model um, in this work because this is not charity. This is liberation and and mutual aid. And mutual aid is an idea. It's it's a it's a it's a dream. It's a vision. Um, mutual aid is is a way for a community to take care of its own, of it, you know, of, of the folks within their own community, like community neighborhood hubs. The challenge is not everyone in the in the community has the same capacity to be to be uh, equitably supportive. And that's due to our capitalist uh, system that that some folks uh, unfortunately don't have the resources to be supportive of other people. So mutual aid is a vision. But, but the way it's manifested here is that people who, people who have the capacity to give what they have um, are willing to, to make these sacrifices to do that and build these relationships necessary so that, so that, so that it is what, what I've always been fighting for, all of us or none of us. Mm. And how can people, like this is, a, of course, a podcast that people listen to um, across the country, we got listeners across the world. How can people support what it is you're doing? So what they can do is um, they can hashtag we keep us safe on Twitter. Um, we keep us safe on Twitter uh, to find out about the DC uh, citywide mutual aid network. We're on Facebook, uh, DC mutual aid network. Um, here in DC, you know, each ward has a hotline number and an email address. And if you go onto that DC Mutual Aid Network Facebook Facebook page, um, you could find out information on all the work that's 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 um, happening in DC. And I think I think DC is a model. We, when we've had our meeting calls, we've had folks um, as far as California, um, you know, tag into what we are doing um, here in DC because they need to set up their own version of mutual aid networks. And so, you know, I don't know what's going on globally, but I do know nationally uh, folks in, in, in various cities and communities are are working on it, are working on building um, um, their own mutual aid network. Here in DC, we have some advantages. Um, you know, it's interesting that I think that this is probably a way where we can, you know, I'll speak for black people, if I, if I may speak for black people, that that gentrification can be used as a benefit um, in this particular situation, because the goal is for people to not travel, to, to acquire resources. Mm -hmm. And for many of the communities in which where we live in DC, specifically where I live on Capitol Hill, um, Ward 6 in, in general, it's a highly gentrified community that has these pockets of the traditional um, black communities. And now those traditional black neighborhoods and communities, specifically some of the housing projects, they are surrounded by these luxury condos, right? And so my goal is to create these hubs. We've divided them into pods where folks, the haves who live literally down the street or on the same block can, can literally provide um, the supplies and the equipment necessary for the folks in the projects, their neighbors, um, to be able to utilize to survive. And so in a way, you know, you, you, you know, the mixed, quote unquote, mixed income communities, which is usually a canard of meaning, you know, overdevelopment, but in a way, having the economic mix within the community, given the, the nature of, of the COVID-19 virus pandemic, it could actually be of benefit. And I can't believe I'm saying that. It, it took a pandemic to, to, I guess, have that come out of my mouth. But that's that's kind of the way we are trying to sustain uh, long term. That's real talk right there. Um, and Maurice, before we go, I know you have some roots in New Orleans. 
And, you know, I have a lot of friends in New Orleans from doing work years ago um, around the Superdome and Hurricane Katrina and the destruction of the levees. And this is hitting New Orleans particularly hard. Is there anything you want to say about that? Absolutely. Um, you know, D.C. is the home in which I was born and, and in the region that which I come from. But New Orleans was the first home of my choice. Uh, I moved to New Orleans when I was a young man of, of, of 20 years old. I dropped out of school at Howard University, and I was, I was going through a bunch of stuff. And, and I, at that time, I called it running away, but I, I really ran towards. And, and what I ran towards was my soul, my spirit, and a lot of love and, and my history and where I came from and where so many of us come from. And, and I met some beautiful, wonderful, amazing people. I want to shout, shout them out right now. Uh, Harper, Harper Karen and, and, and Jimmy and Rocky uh, McGuire and Sally, their cousin. And, and, and these are like my family, right? They took care of me um, when I needed support uh, in my early young, young man age. And uh, New Orleans is where my heart and my spirit is. And, and I know that they're, they're, they're experiencing some devastating um, outcomes uh, specifically for the, the, the poor, the, the, the systemically oppressed, uh, marginalized black community down there in New Orleans. And they're using the, the police force, NOPD, uh, as, a, as a tool to con uh, really continually oppress uh, many of the black people down there. And, and a lot of people are suffering down there, not just black people, but, you know, black people are taking the brunt. Um, of, of COVID-19 down there and locking too many of us up and putting us even in more risk and in more danger. And I just want to say, you know, God has a special love for New Orleans and everybody who's been down there connected to, to, to New Orleans knows that and that they're not alone and, and people are thinking of them, praying for them and, and, and will we'll be there to support um, their survival as well. Mm. Wow, that was that was really strong. I feel you a thousand percent with that. And it, what's the tragedy is that we can apply that sentiment to so many cities right. in the United States right now. And we're just getting garbage from this administration. You probably heard the uh, General Jerome Adams trying to link coronavirus to drug and alcohol consumption. And then that, that was particularly in the black Latinx communities. Um, did you see that? I didn't see it. No. When did that come out? Uh, he said, tell your abuela, tell your pop pop, tell big mama to stop doing drugs and, and drinking and that'll help curb coronavirus. And these are straight up racist. It's you know what? Racist, and they're using that capitalistic model of saying, I mean, and it just shows you the logic of it, saying that coronavirus is somehow a question of personal responsibility. Of course. Of course, that is that is since slavery. That's 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 the since since colonialism. That is always the justification of genocide, personal responsibility. Uh, the, the the indigenous were too savage, weren't civilized, needed domination. Black people were inhuman, needed to be kidnapped, needed to be forced into slavery, needed to be oppressed needed to be genocided you know all of the all of the european eastern european immigrants these were not um true christians they they, they had they had different practices um evil and their religious evil with catholicism it's always you other you other folks and you always justify why they are the the reason um, their behavior is the reason that has created their condition. Never, never acknowledging or taking responsibility that the system is created to marginalize, oppress these, you know, others uh, for the benefit of the capitalist machine. Exactly. And of course, you know, I, I'm reading this book right now, Underground Railroad, uh, can't recommend it enough. And you know, they talk about the brutal logic of what you just described, saying basically, well, if you if slavery was not uh, meant to be, well, then one would not be enslaved. If Native Americans were not meant to be conquered, then we wouldn't have been able to conquer them. And so it's like you create these ideological foundations for the settler colonialism that you're talking about and, and for crimes against humanity. 
That's right. That's and you know Hitler used that playbook to do a lot of damage, and he learned it here yes, because he, he had he had a whole school of thought of of eugenics and 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 oppressive ideology, um, dehumanizing swaths of people. Um, we we are the purveyors, the United States of America. We are the purveyors of this. It's never not existed, even during colonial days before we were established as an independent nation. It is it is the blood that that streams through the veins of of this country. And you know what I'm going to say it publicly. What I thank Donald Trump for is to he he doesn't shy away from it. And and I think. People are, you know, a lot of liberals, I'm going to call them out. Liberals are so upset that, that they have someone in, in power that is absolutely American, right? He's absolutely quintessentially American. Ask anyone from any other country. Um, and they're just upset that he, he is emboldened, that he, he does not hide it. He doesn't use uh, subtle or nuanced or coded language to describe his ideology. An ideology that a good, at least we can say 35 to 40% of the people have here in this country. And they're not gonna go away. You can get rid of him, but they're not going anywhere. And I said, listen, I think when it comes to the election, black people protect Democrats and liberals from um, actually having to take those crazy ass races that that white folks have to deal with during the holidays when when those when 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 we vote we protect them from from those crazy uncles actually their ideology being part of our political understanding and establishment and so we have to we have to have some accountability conversations about this and i i think the election is you know what's happened thus far is 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 very interesting and and folks are, are unfortunate unfortunate for them they no longer have the privilege to not face this directly folks out there who want to know some of what we're talking about there's a book called hitler's american model the united states and the making of nazi race law by james q whitman i recommend that book uh, very highly to folks to get educated about this uh not history they teach us in school Hey, Maurice Cook, I really appreciate you joining us. Any final thoughts or words you want to share? Hey, I want you and your, your family to be safe, Dave. We need you for the long haul. We need your, your wife for the long haul, the, the wonderful work that she does and those beautiful kids you have. And, and take care of your family. And, um, and you know, everyone, this is, this is, a, this is a marathon. And, and we just have to be here for each other in the best way that we can. And it's not ideal. Um, it's hard not to give people hugs and, and love up on people in the way that we normally do. But we, we, I think this is a transition and we have an opportunity. Unfortunately, so much sacrifice is gonna have to come to get there, but we have an opportunity to kind of rethink and remodel and restructure some of the uh, our normal methods of, of taking care of each other. Damn. Thanks so much, Maurice. Hey, yo, man, be safe yourself and give and a lot of love for you and yours, okay? Thank you, Dave. Take care now. All right, be well. Peace. That was Maurice Cook, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from uh, The Nation magazine. Uh, if you've been following what's been going on, uh, not just with the coronavirus, but with the very, very ugly political underbelly of what's been happening with the coronavirus, uh, then you know that The Nation magazine is absolutely indispensable to this coverage. And if you haven't been following what's been happening with what the Trump administration is doing with regards to trying to limit voting rights, trying to use ventilators and life-saving equipment as political patronage, uh, what they're doing with ICE on the border right now with regards to the coronavirus, what they're doing in the prison system. If you want to know this stuff, and I would argue you need to know this stuff, you need to check out what The Nation magazine is doing right now. Uh, you go online, it's all the paywalls are down. And what you can do is support The Nation at thenation.com slash subscribe. Please do so, thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, we are back. 
And now I'm going to talk about the plans to bring back the sports world. Okay, look, in Stephen King's The Running Man, the masses in a near future dystopia are entertained by a hellish live action death match where alleged criminals have to escape a gauntlet of good guys or be killed in the process. It's the most popular show in a broken world defined by rampant decay. We haven't reached running man levels yet in the post-corona sports world, but it seems like various sports commissioners want to give it their best shot. The Trump-encouraged plans to start play would create an apocalyptic funhouse where athletes, the workers, risk their lives as diversion for the subjects of a flailing empire. The specific ideas being bandied about are as cruel as they are bizarre with no concern for either public health or the well-being of those running these virus-infused gauntlets. Take Ultimate Fighting. UFC's war chief Dana White has a plan to use an unnamed private island, which he's calling Fight Island, as a site for family-friendly combat. He also, according to the New York Times, has an almost unthinkable planned venue for a fight on April 18th, although that's since been canceled. But it was a Native American reservation in California. And by staging the match there, White thought he'd be able to skirt California's statewide shelter-in-place laws. He said, I'm ready to get back. You keep people in their houses for too long without entertainment, people are going to start losing their minds. Well, I'm losing my mind at the thought of bringing together a viral contagion and a Native American reservation. There's not a very good history of that. Now, Dana White is a dear friend of Donald Trump, who's also thirsting for the diversion that sports provide. Anything to take the focus from his disastrous handling of this pandemic. In Major League Baseball, Commissioner Rob Manfred is shepherding a brazenly irresponsible plan to start in early May. The blueprint is to sequester players for four and a half months from friends and family to play all their games in the spring training parks of Arizona, which should hit roughly 120 degrees in the shade by July. And I'm sure management will remind them that it's a dry heat. As one Mets player said to the New York Post, it's the desert. Stuff doesn't live there. It dies there. The only travel would be to and from the stadiums. The ideas about how to maintain social distancing in baseball strain credulity. Meetings on the mound between pitcher and catcher would be forbidden. Players would sit in the stands at a safe distance from one another instead of the dugout. In addition, umpires would be positioned six feet away from every base with an electronic strike zone to use to further keep everyone at a good, safe space. No word yet if you can only tag someone out at a distance of six feet. Now, Major League Baseball is conjuring this plan alongside the union, which must make Marvin Miller do the triple Lindy in his grave. Rob Manfred and the billionaire bosses also have the go-ahead from federal officials to execute this, which in the context of Trump must be seen as motivated by impulses both politicized and corrupt. They certainly aren't inspired by public health, not if they're backing this. And Lord only knows what the NFL is brewing in its Park Avenue offices to put the players on the field. A league that has shown it cares little for the health of its players won't hesitate to put them out there with two Advil and a prayer. The NBA seems to be the only league with its head on straight. One general manager said to ESPN that NBA commissioner Adam Silver, quote, was the first to close, and that resonates. We're not going to be the first to open and have it be a disaster. And as Silver himself said, the fact is now, sitting here today, I know less than I did then. And I think in some ways, just as I listen to the public health experts and the people advising us, the virus is potentially moving faster than maybe we thought at that point. So maybe it will peak earlier. What that means in terms of our own ability to come back at some point whether it be in late spring or early summer, is unknown to me. What a curious idea, having the virus, not the need for billionaires and chummy unions determine the timeline of returning to the field. We don't need bread purposes. We don't need distractions. We don't need running man. We don't need mortal combat. What we need is to grow the hell up and wait this out. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. 
Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show where we talk about the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. Uh, The Just Stand Up Award this week. It's an eight-year anniversary of Jalen Rose taking the absolute paint off of Skip Bayless, one of the most noxious sports pundits in the entire world. This is what Jalen Rose had to say and just revel in somebody putting Skip Bayless where he belongs, which is in the dustbin of history. The positions were only created so a novice could follow the game. Just because you're a power forward, that doesn't make you physical. Just because you're a shooting guard, that don't mean you can jack up threes. That's what, just what were you, Jalen? What were you? What were you? Did you, average, were you? did you average one point four yeah, points yeah, yeah, as a senior yeah, in high school? Yeah, I did. Okay, so yeah. all of that pistol pee stuff, Water Pistol Pete okay. Jr. Okay, we'll, we'll address that later. We're okay. going to. And Don't ignore that. Did you play junior? Yeah. Did you play JV as a junior? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I followed What were you? you? Okay. What were you? What was your uh, position? I have no position. I have you no You are a point guard. I have no game. That was Jalen Rose. Thank you, Jalen. Uh, we also have the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. And this was the easiest Just Sit Your Ass Down that we've ever done. Uh, folks might remember a week ago. We had on the show Grant Wall, the foremost soccer journalist in the world. And Grant Wall was fired without severance this past week from Sports Illustrated. This comes on the heels of Sports Illustrated being bought up by this venture capitalist vampire firm called Maven. And not only did Maven fire Grant Wall, not only did they do that, but... In addition, they also trashed him in a memo where they talked about his selfishness because he refused to take a pay cut and all sorts of things that are frankly defamatory and that Grant Wall has said are absolutely untrue. This is really disgusting. I mean, this is a great journalist being treated like crap. Yes, he's one of millions of people who've lost their jobs, but not only is he part of the Edge of Sports fam right here, Uh, He's somebody who they chose to absolutely trash on his way out the door. It's not the way you run Sports Illustrated, one of the great magazines to ever exist. But Sports Illustrated isn't Sports Illustrated anymore. And so I don't see why anybody going forward should pay it a damn lick of time. This is horrible. And solidarity with Grant Wall uh, times 100. And people should go back last week and listen to our interview with Grant Wall and understand why he's such a special person. His wife, Dr. Cecile Gounder, is on the front lines of fighting the coronavirus epidemic. And he was at home and he's been writing about this, like trying to uh, keep the home fires uh, burning while she's out 24-7 trying to keep us all alive. And this is when Maven decides it's time to not only fire him, but, but trash his character. So the hell with Maven. Sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much to Maurice Cook for making the time. Thank you to everybody out there listening. Uh, If you want to know what I would love for you to do if you're sitting at home not doing anything, it would be to give the show a nice rating. Uh, Write a little comment about the show at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Um, If y'all have any thoughts to me about a Just Stand Up or a Just Sit Down Award, you can always email me, Dave Zirin, at edgesports at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at edgesports. Please stay safe. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.